Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm Justin Bazaar. I'm your host, and that's B as in boy, I double Z A double R O. And today, I have with me, my lovely and charming, understanding and beautiful co-host and significant other, Deborah Micus. Hello. And today, we'll be interviewing White Oaks Pastures, uh, Mark Harrison. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm very good, Justin. Thank you. And so, Mark, tell us a little bit about the history of White Oak uh, Pastures and what you do there. Um, well, thank you for having us on today. We're very excited to be able to share with your audience uh, the history of White Oak Pastures, uh, which is a little over 150 years old, a six-generation farm. Um, my role here is primarily in the poultry production. I've been involved with the family for a while now, uh, developing strategies to do grass-fed poultry, along with the other species they have on the farm uh, that also are grass-fed. Uh, we've developed a multi-species farm uh, that is uh, moving, has moved uh, completely away from the monoculture that it began as about 150 years ago with just cattle. Uh, the history is quite unique. Uh, Will Harris, uh, who is the fourth generation farmer that transitioned us to uh, this new way of regenerative farming, his uh, great-grandfather brought the first cattle to this part of the country uh, back in the 1800s. Uh, since that time, uh, they grew uh, a very large farm here on an original 1,000 acres. Currently, uh, White Oak Pastures is around 3,500 acres now of multi-species uh, animals uh, ranging from uh, cattle to chickens to rabbits, uh, ducks, geese, uh, laying hens, pigs, sheep, and goats, all of which are raised in a natural habitat and on the farm and given the opportunity to exhibit natural instincts. So uh, Will and the uh, mid-90s uh, decided that he wanted to move his farm away from the ag industry, which had become heavily commoditized, uh, industrialized, and commercialized to a more regenerative process. He was just tired of seeing the things that was going on with antibiotics. Uh, his soil had died in his, in his eyes, and uh, he just felt there was a better way to bring, bring a product to the market. And uh, so that's kind of how this transition to what we are today began. Uh, moving away from uh, cattle lots and uh, grain-fed beef to 100% grass-fed beef. Uh, in that period of time, uh, and since that period of time, we've developed our own farm uh, arbitoires where we uh, pretty much are a closed zero-waste facility, uh, providing uh, you know animals the access to what they would naturally have in order to grow healthy, be strong, uh, and, and to become a part of a, a, a very large market here in South uh, Georgia that has grown and expanded to where White Oaks now delivers products pretty much nationwide uh, via online services as well as wholesales here out of uh, this area up to Atlanta and uh, all the way from Miami pretty much uh, to New Jersey. I, you know, I'm loving hearing this whole regenerative farming concept. And um, on one side, it's kind of a newer trend. But on the other side, if you really think about it, I think it's probably really historically how it all really was. But it's taking us back to a more natural product, which is really, I believe, healthier for human beings. And we're also seeing that trend in food in today's world, that people are really starting to look at food as medicine. And uh, to be getting pure product that isn't you know, riddled with all sorts of ingredients or the animals being treated in such a way where they're actually eating the food that's natural to their diet. Um, 
I just think that it's so great to hear that you guys are doing this and that it's been something that you started doing in the 90s and are continuing to expand in that process. And so, I mean, so when he brought this concept about, I mean, was that a big undertaking or was it you guys kind of took it one piece at a time in terms of turning your farm that direction? Well, Will is uh, quite a character, and for, uh, he'll tell you that it was a major undertaking, but that's all that Will seems to have always done, and that is to tackle things head on. Uh, when he makes a decision, uh, as he did to go from, uh, you know, he bucked the system. In southwest Georgia, uh, we, are, we are a row crop uh, part of the world. Everything is done and sprayed and chemically grown. Uh, cattle certainly aren't. Um, uh, not fed grain. Uh, so when he started bucking the system, people probably thought he was crazy at the time. Uh, and, and probably some still do, which is what makes uh, this opportunity so much fun because he flew in the face of what was going on. And as a result of that, has created probably one of the largest regenerative farms in America, certainly on the East Coast. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the thing about it is, though, it is not something really new. It's just the way it was done hundreds of years ago. Uh, our story is more than just a regenerative farm, which is exciting and bringing grass-fed beef to the, to the market or grass-fed products and, and humanely raised products. It's a rebirth of a town. I mean, uh, Bluffton, which is where we're located, uh, is a town that actually died because of agriculture, if you really look at it. It was an agricultural town that uh, kind of went away when everybody left to go to the big cities. And now all of a sudden, this town has become rebirthed just like the land that we're regenerating as a result of agriculture, because this engine that is now here called White Oak Pastures, uh, this, this, this began to bring back the life to a town that withered away. So the story is really kind of twofold. It's regenerative farming, it's humanely raised animals, but it's also um, you know, community redevelopment and uh, jobs and, and excitement for people that or from all walks of life have come together to kind of uh, share in a common bond and a common goal. So it's kind of been an exciting journey, both for Will, I think, for his family who has seen this town grow, which he says this all the time. His father and grandfather would have looked at him and said, there's no way you would have this kind of situation. Uh, they could have never imagined sitting down with uh, 165 employees at an uh, on-farm pavilion that feeds both its employees and guests and people traveling by uh, you know, they would have looked at him and thought he was crazy if he would have said this to them, you know, in the 90s when he started over. So, yes, it's, it's been a big shock and a big deal. You know, it, there's just so much content here, and there's just so many wonderful things that you guys are doing. And, you know, from even, you know, feeding all of your employees, the growth, the you know, having it regenerate a town. I mean, in today's world, I mean, we're really starting to see uh, all sorts of companies who are really wanting to use locally sourced products. And a lot of that is to help their own economies. And you guys are, you know, all, you know, a great example of a company that has, has done that and has had success in that. And so that's just, you know, amazing. I mean, also in terms of, so I wanted to ask you, like, from an economic standpoint, I mean, switching over, I mean, originally the reason, you know, farming went to the way that it was is because it was to try to make, to mass produce things, to mass produce uh, animals and crops and whatnot. And so it was for the almighty dollar. So to switch it over, I mean, when you end up having zero waste and things like that, I mean, 
in the beginning, I can see how maybe it's tricky to have it make financial sense, but have you guys found a way to make it make financial sense? Uh, that's really a great question, and it's so loaded with so many other questions. But, yes, I mean, we've been a profitable company since uh, they began. We'll, we'll tell you that in the beginning. Uh, on Fridays, they just used to look at their bank account and go, okay, we did good this week. Now we are, uh, uh, I think we have somewhere around 67 different departments that generate some level of work for the farm. Uh, it's a multifaceted operation. Uh, that generates, a, a, you know, an excess of 20 plus million a year in revenue streams and uh, has brought an extraordinary amount of economic boost to a town that literally virtually was not existent again. I mean, our population still is only 100, but there is 165 employees. So uh, it's kind of fun <laughs> to see that. And it, right. the census is, uh, uh, we're hoping in the 2020, we've grown by five or six folks. So that's exciting. But, you know, the, 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 the part that gets real uh, interesting here is that the the way that we have grown and uh, Will prefers not to have taken the industrialized approach. In fact, that's why he left. The industrialization, uh, the commoditization of, of our food, uh, the commercialization kind of removed the human part of this. It removed the ability for people to know. I mean, back in the day, our parents, grandparents or whatever, they, they knew where their food came from, and, and we had a healthier population. I mean, I don't think anyone in the country can argue that. Um, now what we're seeing, uh, especially with Will and what Will wanted to see achieved for us, uh, he doesn't run out and buy the, the, the piece of equipment that eliminates eight people. He goes out and hires eight people. Uh, even though it's not necessarily considered the most profitable move uh, for him, uh, the picture is much bigger and his family. It's, it's about putting people to work. It's about getting people to have an opportunity locally. Southwest Georgia is, if you saw where Bluffton is, we're in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we're three and a half hours to an airport, uh, at least an international airport, and uh, that's not something that most people are used to. I mean, we can get to Bozeman, which is a little bit uh, west of us, but um, the big goal here for Will is to put people to work. So instead of, um, you know, hiring and being industrialized, being uh, highly mechanized, he said, what does it take to do that job and can a couple of people do that and earn a decent wage? We have some of the best wages uh, in Early County and in uh, uh, Clay County, which is where we are. And so that is part of the big mission here. It's, it's more about that than it is about profitability. Um, and so we, I think that's amazing, number one, that you know the amount of employees in the town coming together, and I want to get back on that topic. But I want to also ask: you mentioned multiple multiple species on the farm, and and we sort of talked about it. I, it was you know rabbits, sheep, goats, cattle, ducks, chickens. But when when you say in their natural habitat, did they all like actually live together in the fields and and sort of just roam naturally? Uh, that that is and to some degree correct, but we do have predation. So the the difference is, and and part of the concept here was, is that when Will came out of the monocultural uh, agricultural um, design work that he was doing in the 90s, it was about one species, and that was cattle. Nature, in and of itself, abhors monoculture. If you go out into the forest, you see tons of different things living, whether it's rabbits, squirrels different species of grasses, trees. Uh, nature loves to have that. That's what makes it thrive. That's what makes it healthy. When you begin with a monoculture uh, or you try to do that, the only way that survives is by 
treating it, antibiotics, growing it with fertilizers, it doesn't get a natural cycle. Uh, so one of the goals was is to figure out how uh, Will has expanded. I mean, again, the family farm was originally about 1,000 acres. Now we're at 3,500 and slowly ramping up to 5,000 in the next 18 months we, we're looking at. But in order to do that, the land had to be healed. It has to be healed to generate enough grass to move, you know, 2,000 head of cattle around on a constant basis. Uh, so part of that is not just cattle. It's how do we interact the cattle with the pigs, with the sheep, the herbivores and the omnivores, uh, who goes first, who comes second. So it's very common to come to our farm and to see a thousand cattle moving through a pasture for a couple of days, like buffalo did back many, many years ago and that are trying to make a comeback and doing now in the Great Plains. They move through and they'll bring the grasses down to a certain level. We're moving our chickens. Let's assume at any given point, I have 40,000 beating hearts uh, of uh, poultry species on the farm of which around 20 to 25,000 of them to 30 are out in the field. Some are in what we call brooders. Um, that's where they're staying as babies. But once they get moved into the pasture at about four, three to four weeks of age, there until they have become harvested for our customers as a meat byproduct of what we do, uh, they are inter interacting at all times. And so there'll be cattle moving through the field and then there'll be chickens in that same field. Uh, we'll bring sheep through behind them. Uh, we'll bring goats in and impact our wooded areas because goats like to eat thorns and thistles, sheep like grass, pigs will tear up land that is hardened and unable to be uh, and release some things so that the grasses can begin to grow again. So it's exciting if you look at our videos at White Oak Pastures or if you look at like, um, you know, we were talking about this morning as we're moving those cattle. Cattle typically are only in a particular area for about a day or two and then they move to another pasture. And so it's a very mobile operation and animals are moving constantly and they're interacting constantly. We have to protect them with fencing and different styles of doing it or through separation by delaying who's where and when. But overall, yes, it's a really commingled kind of operation uh, and it's very exciting to see what happens to the land once that's occurred because we're taking soil in many cases that had chemicals sprayed on it for 50 years and we're breaking it down and we're putting nitrogen back into it. We're creating biomass. Uh, we're putting back in uh, the manure and the waste from the cattle, and then we're seeding that every year with the correct annuals like rye and bahia, clover, things that were naturally part of this, this, this landscape many, many years ago, but that has been wiped out due to the, you know, the chemical and uh, row crop farming. So it's a really uh, interesting thing. You start seeing the old land, the old soil is teeming with life and and, and it's beautiful and dark and rich. And as we move each year, as we do, into newly acquired land that has been chemically um, uh, handled for years, that process of breaking that soil apart, putting it back together, and letting it begin to thrive again, and the fungi and the biomass, it's just exciting to watch. Each season, you see a change in that land. And so we, uh, that's kind of where we are. And I well, and I just want to make a quick point, and I know Deborah has a question, but Deborah and I were recently at Walt Disney World in, in Epcot Center, and they took this whole thing about agriculture. And I just want to make a point because one of the things, and you talked about the buffalo, and one of the reasons the mid-United States is so fertile uh, and has had such agricultural boom, and it's suffering now because exactly they bankrupted the soil nutritionally, 
Uh, but the buffalo running across the soil wildly, their hooves and stuff help loosen up the soil and, and give birth to it. And then the animals, other animals sort of followed the buffalo in, in the way they moved around. So it allowed all these prairies to have all these nutrients in the soil, which is great soil. So basically, you're recreating that process on your farm. I mean, the hooves, I mean, people don't realize it, that... It's, you know, why does a cattle have a hoof? But there, it actually is almost designed that way. And we didn't, um, until recently, I didn't even realize that how important a cattle's hoof was or a pig's hoof was because the way they tear up the soil as they're grazing helps bring it back to life and continue the cycle. And I think that's so incredible. Well, Justin, you hit it dead on. I mean, I think that's exciting that. We're on a podcast and you're talking about this. This is, uh, again, it goes back to uh, Will being crazy 30 years ago and people not realizing what was uh, needed. And he did and saw it way, very visionary. He saw it way before a lot of people and certainly still a lot of people that have not signed on to this way. But, you know, in the Midwest in the years ago, these, these animals were being moved by the predation. I mean, the predators, the wolves, the lions, that was the natural way. And that's why they moved them. And they... And also, no animal wants to stand in its own mess and eat. So they constantly are looking for fresh ground. But while they're doing that, they are doing exactly what you said. They're, they're breaking the ground, they're urinating, they're defecating, and they're spreading seeds. And as a part of that, you know, they may make that cycle run two or three times a year because the grasses and stuff come back, and they're taking it at different times of the year and different parts of the season. But without that natural occurrence, Soil does die, and we see it every day. Land erosion around this world is extraordinary, and a lot of that is because of the industrialization and the commoditization of our of our livestock. We've pulled it all into a very small area, and we've allowed we're not allowing it uh, to do what it does naturally. So it's been a really unique shift for this farm and several other farms like this across the country that are beginning to do this, and and so it's, the impact is very high. It's slow, it's uh, expensive, it's difficult, uh, but it's very rewarding because uh, at the end we know that we're doing the right thing and the animals certainly do reward us from it because uh, they look healthy, they provide us with a great product. Well, and also their life, while they're, you know, living, they have a quality life. They're getting to roam, they're getting to be natural in a habitat that's natural to them. So there's a lot to be said for that as well. And so, I mean, I'm just trying to imagine what, you know, I mean, he had this great vision and I'm just trying to imagine he's starting with one animal and then it's like this choreography where he's like, hey, to be able to really complete the cycle, I need to add this animal. And so the farm, it sounds like, continued to grow, not just by its footprint, but also by the diversity of the products you guys have, you know, in the process. And so, I mean, it's like this big choreography that he's created. And so, I mean, with that being said, you guys have new property coming online here, which will bring you guys to 5,000 acres. And so, one, how long does it take to regenerate that land once you bring it under, under your control? That's a very, very good question. It's, it's getting easier and quicker because of uh, both just natural experience. Uh, will will tell you they've made mistakes along the way. Uh, learning how to break the soil down, which animals to bring first, which seeds to plant in the winter, uh, doing, we're a no-till farm, so we drill the seeding in. We spend quite a good money at the end of each year to uh, plant the seeds. 
but you will be able to see an extraordinary difference between year one and year two. But what you don't get in year two is typically the grasses. You still have a lot of the, the, the weeds and the things that come back. So utilizing the livestock, particularly the cattle, to continue to nip those things down, uh, to, to cut those kind of uh, unwanted uh, things out of the system, and then bringing the poultry along the way to help uh, generating the nitrogen and things of that nature that gives the stimulation to the grasses. Once the grasses have taken over, once they have begun to really stabilize, a lot of the stuff, it takes many uh, uh, passes of these animals to get the biomass, the natural fauna, the things that are needed to get regeneration going uh, to, to make it healthy enough so that grasses and other things will grow. But we will see a noticeable difference in year one, year two, and year three. We have pastures right now that are beginning to close in after three years. And what I mean by that is whenever they take over some pastures, but you know, where it's, uh, where it's been farmed by cotton or corn or soybeans, which is um, your typical rotations or peanuts, I should say, uh, that soil is really just big, bright, red, uh, orange soil. So if you just let it go, what you have is a little bit of scrub that grows out there and nothing else. And so you have these patches of, of, of large patches of just earth. And until you get that uh, covered with something to hold it, to put roots in it, you still have massive amounts of erosion. So the process for us is both the combination of the animals and seeding properly and allowing it to rest and bringing it back in. We'll destroy a pasture, pasture we call it, uh, at the end of each year when we acquire, say, a large piece of land. That's where the cattle will winter over because grasses do begin to slow down around October, November. So we'll, that's the only time of the year that we'll take this, say, large herd of cattle. They're both birthing and they're gonna be stationary in a several hundred acre paddock. And we feed them haylage that we've collected off of our farms over the summer. Uh, but that hay, we call it hay bombing. It goes into the ground. The cattle eat it. They waste a lot of it, but they're stepping it into the ground, creating the biomass that we need and, and the carbon that we need to get into the soil so that when spring comes and we move those cattle off of it, it literally looks like a bomb is going off on those fields, but it's already got some black dirt on it. It's already got some biomass going. It's already got some things that give it a chance uh, to start growing. And then from there, we'll seed again, but it can take several years to get full recovery, uh, but we will begin to see some changes almost instantaneously because Mother Nature, by, by its own nature, uh, wants to heal itself as quickly as possible. And, giving the opportunity in the breathing room by removing the chemicals and the monoculture crops, uh, it automatically begins to shoot up stuff that it naturally wants to give the soil what it needs in order to create a much healthier environment. So we're fortunate in one way, but it is still a process and it still takes several years to get full recovery. And so do you guys, are you guys considered or an organic? I mean, is that a title you put um, on, you have? The, the land... The land, as it reaches certain stages of unchemicalized um, uses, uh, will become can become certified organic. But as a farm or product production, we do have an organic vegetable garden that we do use to supply both ourselves, our own farm store, our pavilion, and then we we sell to uh, some wholesalers that distribute to restaurants in Atlanta. So that section of the farm would be considered a USDA uh, certified organic operation, but the land, as it passes through the third year uh, without chemical interference, uh, then can be certified organic. 
but as a uh, meat product, we don't claim an organic product. We just are a non-GMO, grass-fed, pasture-raised, and humanely raised organization. I, and I love this. I'm sure I'm going to offend someone, but it is my opinion, is that you know, when we think about things and people talk about being vegetarian or vegan, obviously I have nothing against it, but I think a lot of it has to do with not understanding that we need animals in the rotation to also produce the fruits and vegetables. And in the natural way it's being done as you guys are doing it, um, and I've been in food a long time, almost my entire life, is that having the animals naturally rotate and do the things that they do, you know, in order to have the vegetables that we need, in order to have the soil that can grow the vegetables efficiently, we need the animals, one, their waste, but two, their hooves, as we discussed, and they, they're they important for rejuvenating the soil that we have already damaged. So, you know, we can talk about, you know, you know, the animals and slaughtering them and whatever, that's a whole different conversation. But the real important part is that there is a natural cycle that was designed and, and whether by mother nature or by God or, or, or by science, no matter which way you look at it, it is, to me, it was in, designed intentionally because it's just works together too perfectly. Like the land survives better if the cattle are on it and the, and the pigs are on it and, and the chickens are there, which, like you said, they produce nitrogen in their waste, which is important for soil to grow and, and the grasses and spreading the seeds. And that all leads to the vegetarian things that we have or, or food or produce. So I think there's such a great understanding in what you guys are doing that there is a natural cycle for it all. You know, even the rabbits, they right. eat the grass, they have waste also. And it's just such an amazing full circle thing that you guys are doing there. Well, I mean, you can grow so much better vegetables with an organic, organically uh, rich soil that has not had herbicides and pesticides and chemicals sprayed on it. I mean, um, you know, it's hard to do that correctly, but you're correct and 100 uh, percent correct in that allowing the natural course of action to take its place. Uh, the things that uh, are naturally damaging to certain kind of uh, plants and vegetables have, uh, you know, and need pesticides and need the chemicals and need the types of things that we have to spray on them to keep them alive. A lot of that is managed properly through just the natural selection. And so uh, giving the, the earth its own opportunity to produce the kind of soil that it needs to grow the kind of uh, food that we want, uh, that's where we are. I mean, there's, we're a long way from ever becoming, uh, you know, chemical-free everywhere, but and there's a lot of a population on this planet that's got to be fed. And so industrialized farming and uh, commercialized farming is, is not going away, but it's certainly important that we start seeing farms like ours begin to put down a stake in this world and to say, we're going to change that. Uh, we're going to do some carbon sequestering. We're going to pull carbon out of the air and put it back into the ground with plants because we're growing more of that to feed the animals. You know, uh, the best way to look at white oak pastures is that we are truly a regenerative farm. We're building soil and that the meats that we have available, the products that we offer, are simply a byproduct of that process. Uh, you know, we're not necessarily in the grass-fed beef market or the poultry market. We're in the regenerative farm and carbon sequestering and land regeneration. And as a result of that, we give uh, all the animals that are here uh, an extremely nice, humanely 
uh, rays life and uh, they go on to become a part of our life cycle here and provide a great product that people can consume that's clean meat, raised correctly, and that have done their part in helping us regenerate land. Um, I just want to take a second to invite the audience to go to White Oak Pastures on Instagram. And three days ago, um, they posted... It's a drone, and it's showing a cattle drive from one pasture to another. And you can see what he's talking about. You can see where the cattle had been, and the grass is somewhat, you know, you can tell the cattle have eaten it and whatever, and then they're going, being driven over to another pasture. And one, I think it's super cool that you guys have a drone that captured this. Um, It's just amazing to see it. I mean, how I don't know if you have seen this video, Mark, but... Um, how many cattle are in that drive? And also, who's, are there, I mean, I can't, it's kind of higher up. So do you guys have uh, cowboys out there, like, doing that? Or do you have the dogs that we were talking about before the call who are out there moving the cattle? How's that working? Well, that that is a really, really good question. Um, the uh, We don't have any cowboys, although a lot of us think we are cowboys. Uh, those, uh, Mr. Will is probably the one cowboy on the farm. Uh, but no, the, that herd, particularly herd, is about 1,600 head of cattle. We have uh, four uh, herds on the farm, ranging from uh, a group of 80 uh, up to 1,600. Uh, that pasture they're leaving, they were only on that pasture for about 15 to 18 hours, um, and they move across to the next pasture for about a day. Uh, the, the cattle has basically, uh, they know what it, they know what's up now after the many years of doing this. The older heifers and the older bulls, they know what we're doing. And so when they're out of feed, they're out of uh, grass. And, and we try not to let them destroy these fields that are producing now. So we keep them on there a short period of time. We try to leave around three to four inches of grass on the ground so that it will stimulate the growth that we need. Because they'll go through that particular field, depending on the season, rain, sun, six or seven, eight times a year uh, in the next few months. But typically, we just blow the horn at the gate. If you can see where they're going, it's over across a major highway. Uh, Six or seven of us will line up vehicles just to make sure nobody goes in the wrong direction. Uh, We'll bellow out a couple of uh, hee-yahs and open the (laughs) gate, and there you go. Uh, They'll run across, and, and usually within 10 minutes or less, they're they're all over, and you'll have a few babies that are stragglers, or sometimes you'll get a wily bull or a wily heifer who just doesn't want to do it because she's being or he's being obstinate. But uh, in most cases, about a half a dozen people will walk it through, and they'll run right across. So it's a big deal. Uh, we have a lot of fun with it. It's one of the most exciting times of the day around here is when we move what we call the big herd, and it's a continuous process from about uh, late February, early March until about late November. So. Uh, there's always always opportunity for a lot of things to happen, but we've gotten pretty good at it, and the cattle know where they're going, and they're excited about the new grasses they're about to get. So uh, once they get started, they draft it, uh, you know, or draw is what they call it, and they just draw themselves in, and everybody runs together, and you don't have too much of a problem. Right. When the cattle go, do they run, or do they just kind of meander their way over there? We don't, you know, you try to do what they call add a little pressure to the back, but we don't want them running because this is the herd that has probably 600 babies in it. Okay. So they do run, but it's more of a slight gallop. It's a slow process. Uh, Everybody just kind of backs away and lets them have their own pace. But uh, 
uh, it's all done pretty quickly, and right. uh, and so they, I would call it a gallop. Like, can you hear? Like, is it like a thundering of their hooves and stuff? I mean, that's, that's a lot of cattle, fifteen hundred head, like moving. I'm just like imagining there's got to be like a sound to that as well. Definitely a sound to it, and they're all. Uh, they go very quiet. You'd be amazed uh, from a, a, a verbal standpoint. They, you know, they move quietly, but the thundering of the herd, you'll hear them, especially when they're crossing the main highways, uh, hitting that pavement and then hitting the ground again. So for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, you, you definitely know what's going on. And if you, you didn't know, you would look up and go, what is going on? Because there's a lot going on there. <laughs> I think there's an earthquake. So it's exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, on that note too, I, you know, you said if you saw it, you know, and, but you mentioned before about having uh, a cafe that you not only feed your, the employees, but you also feed other people. So are you guys, do you have like eco tourism kind of stuff where people can come by the farm, they can witness different things? Uh, do you have that component Absolutely. there? And so what all That's can people, if people were to come there, what all can they what all do you show them? What all is open to the public? Well, that's one of the very, very strong points of White Oak Pastures and one of Will's goals from day one. We're very transparent. Um, if you want to see the cattle um, in the arbitoire uh, becoming what we would eat, that option is available. Uh, if you want to uh, simply just ride around and look at the pastures, we have a large truck that carries folks around. We do tours. We have uh, five cabins on the farm that can be booked at any given point that are of various sizes, uh, ranging from, you know, one bed up to can sleep eight. Uh, we offer tours. We offer um, seminars all the time. We have a tallow shop and leather shop on farm that makes uh, pet shoes and leather items from the hides and from the byproduct of our harvested animals. Uh, we took a store that uh, was in the middle of Bluffton that was closed in the 50s. It kind of looks like a time capsule when they opened it up after being closed for many, many years. Will bought it and opened it back up in 2016, and it's kind of the heartbeat of Bluffton. And in there, you can get anything you want from ice cream to uh, dried chicken feet for your pets. It's uh, quite a unique uh, mixture, and it's in downtown Bluffton, uh, and it has a food shop there as well. We have a food truck that serves dinner and it serves uh, breakfast in the mornings. And then we have a pavilion on farm that is kind of geared mainly towards the employees. It's a place for them to go because we are a good way from pretty much anything. So uh, Will decided to put the pavilion in both to give our employees access to the same feed that we sell our uh, food that we sell our customers, uh, the healthy, good food, so you can eat at the pavilion as an employee uh, and as well as a guest, a traveling guest. Anyone can come in, and it's opened every day, five days a week. So uh, from a food standpoint, we're there. Agritourism is very large for us, and we, again, uh, host people. Today we have a wine-tasting group on farm that's traveling uh, through, and they're going to be here looking at different things and uh, experiencing both uh, everything that White Oak has to offer. Uh, individually, we will take you on individual tours. You can book just about whatever level of experience you want, which is what makes White Oak unique. And again, um, it's a farm, and Will likes to pride himself in saying that. There's uh, beautiful photos and beautiful videos, but we are a working farm. So from time to time, you might smell a working farm. You might see things that you go, my goodness, definitely a farm. 
um, you know, but it's here and people can come see it in, in its full glory uh, and in its difficult spots at a time. I mean, we, we just went through a major hurricane and the farm looked like hell for quite a good bit of time. Uh, we're just now recovering from Hurricane Michael. And uh, so that was a very difficult period, but we had lots of folks that were coming through at that time and they got to see what it was like when we were being challenged and they get to see what it's like as we recover and we rebuild. So, uh, yeah, please, I encourage folks out there to come and see us, look at us, uh, but know we're a working farm and anyone's welcome at any time. What if they want to come and live a day of a, of being a farmer? Can they come put their overalls on and partake? <laughs> I have heard of uh, places that they actually go and they let people stay. Like when you said you, I thought you were going to, I thought you were going to say that what is something you had, because when you said you had places, people can stay on site. Um, but I've heard of that where people go and they get to like live the life and work the hard life of a farmer. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, you, you have people paying to come work for you. That's amazing. <laughs> we do. We're very fortunate. Uh, when you start reaching the size that we are, things begin to change. Um, small farms rely heavily on volunteerism. Uh, our particular farm, uh, once it hit a certain size, liabilities, issues that are surrounding people being on the farm uh, and, and at risk if they were to get hurt, we don't offer a volunteer program, but we do have an intern program that's very successful. And on an annual basis, uh, we have interns who will pay um, a fee to be a part of our program, but while they're here, they get paid uh, a wage instead of working for free. And then they are typically uh, offered, in some cases, housing closer near the farm. Uh, they get to eat and, and participate. And they'll go through about a eight-week rotation where they're working in each department uh, at least one week and, in some cases, just two or three days, depending on the department. Uh, and they'll cycle through that, on average, a couple of different times so that when they leave here, uh, if they thought they wanted to be a farmer, then they're really sold and they're going to become a farmer or they're going to go, wow, this isn't for me because we give them the full-on, hands-on farm <laughs> life and they'll be digging pig poop or they'll be collecting eggs or they'll be working in 100-degree weather, pulling chickens around in mobile housing. So uh, when they leave, they'll know whether they want it or don't want it, I assure you. But it's always been a positive experience for us. And our interns. And is that part of your seminars and stuff? Do other fam farmers come to you to learn about what it is you're doing so maybe they can replicate the model? Or what type of seminars do you guys offer? Absolutely. This past weekend, for example, we offered a composting seminar that was successful. We had people coming in from all over, getting up at different times of the morning. Um, and they will come in. We, we compost a little over nine tons of waste a day. Uh, to our own farm composting facilities, and then we use that compost uh, to go back into our fields once it's broken down. So our uh, director of composting, uh, she held a seminar this weekend. Folks came to learn how to do simple backyard composting or to larger scale composting. So it depends on what we're doing. In, in June, we're offering uh, another week weekend where people will come in and they will have exposure to all of the department heads like myself, uh, the person that's over the sheep, people that are over the cattle, people that are over the pigs, uh, they will all be offering an individual uh, seminar within the weekend, and then we'll have uh, a breakout sessions where people can ask specific questions about how to do it. Um, large farmers come. Will has been a part of the Savory Institute pretty much since its institution, which is the leader in soil regeneration and, and the, the godfather of that, Alan Savory, uh, is a mentor, and we host them 
Uh, Sabre Institute has what's called a hub farm where people will go and learn and train and become a part of the regenerative family. Uh, up until a few years ago, there was only a couple, three or four of those farms in the world, and we were one of the first. Uh, now there's only about 35 still uh, internationally. Uh, we were hosted the Savory Institute twice this past year, uh, where people come in from all over the world to learn about soil health, uh, regenerative farming, impact, uh, animal impact, and Will and all of the people that do that will work together. Uh, that's kind of a broader, larger, more sophisticated uh, operation, and, and that is we become a host to the Institute itself while it's here. White Oak Pastures uh, still offers its own programs and where, for example, you might want to learn how to do tallow or to do candles uh, or to do leather, you can come and do leather workshops. So every month we're offering different kind of programs for people to participate in and to stay here. Some are day events, some are weekend events. It just depends uh, on what we have available and what's coming up. But keep a, a breath to our site and you'll see uh, we're offering something almost every month that's unique and different that offers a lot to different kind of folks. Um, so, you know, you mentioned the leather and I, and you mentioned that it comes from the hide of the cattle. And so do you guys actually use all of the hides or do you actually sell some of them because it's more than you need? Yeah, we, we do both. Uh, we, we actually take the hides and we send it to an old tannery in South Florida. It's about a hundred year old tannery. We don't tan the hides on site. We take the hide products as it comes back from this old family tannery that we really love and another one upstate New York. And then we build different things out of them from pockets, uh, pocketbooks, purses, uh, keychains. And then in addition, we also sell the actual hides as floor covers. We have a booming business. Um, you know, people come in and we have hides displayed uh, and people will take them home and put them down on their floor and and put them in front of the fireplace and think of all kinds of romantic things. So it's kind of exciting <laughs> to have that product available. Uh, we have the summer hides and the winter hides, which are uniquely different because the summers are thinner haired. Uh, the winter have a lot more fur to them. And so they're a lot more fun to look at and to rub and to feel. But uh, we have a big business with that. And people can buy those things while they're here on the farm, as well as at times though, things will be available online. Most everything we sell is available through our online internet fulfillment center here at White Oak Pastures. Uh, we uh, send out quite a good number of products. All of our products pretty much go out on, out every day uh, in, in uh, shipments across the nation. Okay, so, um, well, one, we should have people go to your website. So was can you tell us what that is? The website is whiteoakpastures.com. Okay, um, and then can you give us a – oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I may have misunderstood your question. Go ahead. Oh, well, no, that was my question. And then I wanted you to kind of give us an array of all the different products. I mean, it's, I mean, there's just sounds like it's kind of endless, all the different products and businesses that you guys are in. So maybe you can kind of try and give broad strokes to what all are all the different products you guys provide. Absolutely. That's where I get real excited because the poultry department, which covers five species plus includes the rabbits, uh, we offer, I tell everyone on the farm, the best thing we have. But then, of course, the beef guys will argue with me and the cattle, <laughs> uh, the, the sheep guys and the pig guys will argue with me. But the wonderful thing is, is the byproduct of clean food, that's our, our first and foremost, our product, whether it's steaks, whether it's fresh eggs. We actually ship fresh eggs unwashed to you direct to your door. 
they're unrefrigerated and unwashed, so they're perfectly fine once you receive them. Uh, they'll go direct from us to you. We offer uh, pretty much every meat item you can imagine, imagine bone broth, uh, pet chews, uh, pet grind. Uh, there's very little of anything that comes through this farm that's not converted to something that people can use, uh, whether it's human or whether it's animal. Uh, in addition to that, we create candles, tallow, soaps. We have our own honey on farm. Uh, so it's, it's really anything that you would want from a clean food standpoint, uh, as well as other products that have to do from lip balm, chapstick, salves, uh, lotions. There is so much that we're beginning to get into and to create from the animals that we harvest here on the farm that it's absolutely mind-boggling. And uh, people uh, can't imagine until you hit our website uh, and start scrolling through there, you'll see a lot of items from time to time, and especially in peak seasons, uh, that get out of stock, but we're very quick to get those back into stock. Uh, rabbit is very popular, and it's something we're rebuilding right now. Uh, that's uh, in addition to all of our, our poultry products. We offer a great um, holiday turkey. We produce so many turkeys each month, but we also do a special holiday turkey, which is an even more slow-growth bird. People get in line for those. Uh, they'll come up and become available online pretty soon. We start growing those in July, and they'll be ready to go in November. All of our beef products, whether it's our grind, uh, uh, ground beef, or our steaks, our pork, our hams, and of course, we have two hog programs, which is what makes us probably one of the most unique farms in America. We have the Heritage Hog Program, which is your traditional uh, hogs that all of us are familiar with. And then we have the Iberico, which is a Spanish product that came to this market just a few years back. And White Oak Pastures was one of only two farms in America that got the genetics. And the Iberico uh, is quite a different uh, meat. It takes two years just to cure one ham. Uh, and, and this is a very high specialty product that's getting a lot of traffic and that we're beginning to bring to the market now because we're able to, after the many years of developing and working with the Spanish farms that we brought it over with, we're creating a really wonderful uh, specialty product for the Iberico. So uh, these are just different, some of the things that are going on that make us unique. I know we have, uh, we're looking at quail, duck eggs. Uh, uh, we've even had conversations around ostrich in the future. So there's just a never ending line of things that's coming down the pike and that's already here. Wow. So, okay, so there's obviously direct-to-consumer sales that people can do online. Are you guys also in grocery stores? Are you in restaurants? Like, wh who all do you sell to? That's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we've discovered that the direct-to-consumer is one of the best markets that we uh, can, can grow. It's so, uh, we have Amazon to thank for that and other companies that are out there that are buying our products that are distributing online. But uh, the backbone of the farm has always been a great wholesale market. Uh, we are a GAP certified uh, animal welfare and humanely certified farm. Uh, we are one of the few farms in the country that ever reached the GAP 5 plus certifications on certain products. And that's uh, to get us into Whole Foods, uh, which is uh, we're in several stores throughout the country in Whole Foods, Publix. We have a slew of restaurants and cafes through, uh, throughout Atlanta uh, that uh, also serve our uh, you know, products. So some brand, some use us, some use us as just their product. Uh, but by and large, we've been servicing a wholesale market since the beginning, mainly with our beef, and it expanded to all the other products that we have. 
And um, but we really are transitioning a great deal of our our processes to go online to have a more intimate relationship with our customers one on one. And I love that. I think that. Um, and the reason we actually came across you guys is from the flavor of Georgia contest. And over the years you've put in sausages and I believe meatballs and other things that you guys do, but you also do the raw, you know, meats and stuff like that and salamis and, you know, and the, uh, Iberico pork and all that stuff is just, it's such an incredible product line and so diverse and people can come to you guys to get so much, but it's all naturally raised and in the right way and in the environment it should be and so it's just incredible to me i mean it's hard to even just pick one topic like i want to know about ducks but i also you know i want to know about how you do the barico um pork as well so i mean your specialty is the chickens though is that correct that is correct and so tell us about specifically you know what what you do on a day-to-day and and how you know the chickens and how they're raised and the pasture raised not the right term but um, free range and how they you know and and what that means and what the chick the part of the in the process the part that the chickens play well there's a couple of quick questions uh, or a couple of quick statements here one is we would really be considered uh pasture raised as well as free range that's really a miss uh that's a difficult thing right there and that's a good point that you brought up and it's one that we have tried to really perpetuate and that is uh we compete against a lot of the big conglomerates out there the big big uh commercialized ag industries that get the same credit that we sometimes get uh just because they can call it free range because they they open up a side of their 500 foot chicken house and let them get outside possibly through a porthole uh, so they're considered free range at that point. Whereas with us, pasture raised from the moment that the bird reaches enough maturity to go into the field, they're never in a cage of any sort. They have housing that protects them from the elements. They're enclosed in a, an electric poultry netting that we move every two days along with their housing. Uh, so, but in any given point, they have full access to uh, about three quarters of an acre of land uh, that's being moved every day or every other day. And so that's a pastured bird. It's a significantly different uh, animal than a necessarily just a free-ranged bird. But we receive our birds. We don't hatch them online. That's one of our uh, hatch them on farm. We do purchase them. They come from uh, uh, different types of uh, hatcheries from across the nation that we work with for years. One of our goals is to close that loop in the future. We're working towards that now to have our own breeding stock on farm and our own ability to hatch the birds. But at the current moment, we will receive those birds. They'll go into brooders. Uh, those brooders are being maintained by a small team of about three folks who will then uh, raise those birds for three to four weeks in a controlled environment until they've gotten their feathers and they can handle the inclement weather that we have. Because, you know, there are risks that come with doing what we do. Uh, big ag does not like to lose an animal um, and so, therefore, they control every aspect, whether it's the heating, the lighting, the food, the intake, the water. Uh, with us, we kind of let them express themselves, and they get to grow in the way that they would, and the strong survive. Uh, we try to make sure they have every chance possible, but in an environment like ours, where you have soaring heat or cold weather, uh, the animal has to react as it would in the wild or in its natural habitat, and it becomes stronger and a better product. But at about three to four weeks, they will take those animals via 
a crate and or a, a horse trailer. Uh, we load them onto it. We take them into the field to their designated uh, housing area. They'll be released there. And from there until they're harvested, uh, on the average, five to six weeks later, or in some cases longer, depending on season, like turkeys, um, they will live out their lives there, free to roam, free to do what they want to do, free to eat and drink, chase bugs, dust bathe, um, hide from the eagles, uh, these kind of things. I mean, it becomes uh, an interesting and a most beautiful thing to watch because from that period on, they're kind of really out there doing what they would do if we were to let them loose in our backyard or if they had grown up many, many years ago in their own environment. So, um, but at that point, we have a good crew of folks. I have about 15 people on team. Uh, we're constantly moving animals. We're constantly pulling their housing. And we have about 3,000 laying hens in addition to what we call our, our meat products, which are our broilers or turkeys or ducks or geese. Uh, these hens lay about 3,000 eggs a day. Uh, they're harvested on the average all day long from about 7 in the morning till about 1 or 2 in the afternoon when most of them have finished. Those eggs are collected, brought into our egg processing room, candled, uh, packaged, and put into crates and cartons and distributed both here on farm for our own consumers as well as our own restaurants. And then they're boxed and shipped out to our wholesale and our retail customers across the southeast. Um, I want to ask a question because I heard this uh, rumor, I guess, probably, I don't know when, but that the American Eagle population around your farm because of the rabbits and the chicken has actually skyrocketed where there were once like only like two American Eagles in all of Georgia. Uh, there's now like possibly hundreds because of what you guys are doing on your farm. And I obviously that's detrimental to your farm, but I sort of want to talk about the Eagles and and what you guys are doing because you mentioned hiding from the eagles so obviously the eagles in the way you guys are doing it and allowing nature to to run its course are repopulating also is that true that's extremely true and it's uh it is a beautiful thing to watch but uh, uh from an economic thing it's a very difficult thing to watch we've we've been a case study and a, and a challenge uh uh, in the court system with our Eagle program for a while. We, Mr. Will used to say that you never got a sick chicken or a lame chicken at White Oak Pastures because the Eagles took care of them. And we thought that was a really nice thing when there were only two. Uh, and all of a sudden we went from two to about 30 to about 50. And I think they've recorded uh, the year before I got here a little over 100 Eagles on site. And they come in uh, to, to, to raise their hatchlings, to do what they do, and to feast on our animals. Um, and so it has been a challenge. Um, we've done some things to curtail that, the addition of poultry netting uh, that protects them in a one square, 164 square feet space that's moved constantly, uh, livestock guardian dogs that we put inside the paddocks to protect them, to discourage the eagles. Uh, the hurricane that came through this past year, we think actually had an impact by destroying a lot of the natural nesting areas that these eagles were used to coming to. So our numbers were down this year a little bit, but by no means are we not getting uh, uh, hammered by them. Uh, there is a program designed for the US, by the USDA just for our kind of experience, which is where farmers who are experiencing losses due to a federally protected animal like an eagle, um, they are not allowed to shoot them. So the USDA will, uh, typically compensate you for your losses and certainly not all that you lose. Uh, in our case, we were the textbook case for this. And so about three years into this, we uh, 
um, filed our application to be offset some somewhat. We were losing probably, a, uh, based on the original numbers and some of the things that have been discussed, close to a million a year in production just off of the Eagles towards the height. Um, and so we asked for assistance from the USDA through the program that they have, and they uh, said, no, you cannot, you're not eligible. And we're like, well, that makes no sense. This is exactly what we're here, and this is exactly why you're there. So ultimately, Mr. Will, who doesn't take those kind of things lightly, decides that he's going to, uh, go, to go to court with them on it. And so we filed a, a, a case, and we won. Uh, they appealed it. We filed it again. We won. They appealed it. We filed it a third time, and we won. And they can't appeal anymore, and the judge awarded everything to us. But it's still been a challenge for us, uh, for whatever reason, getting the government to turn loose the money that they take to Washington is a lot harder to do than we think. And so uh, it's been a challenge for us. But the Eagles still are here. We're still here. We're still thriving. The Eagles are healthy. A uh, few less chickens occasionally, but overall we're very excited to have them here even. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's a unique opportunity to see. We have a lot of our customers come specifically to Eagle Watch. And uh, it, uh, it's not pretty, uh, but it is fascinating. And it's Mother Nature at its finest with the highest predator there is out there, air predator there is out there doing damage the way they do it. So uh, we encourage everyone if they get a chance, there's a lot of videos, a lot of pictures of our eagles online and what they've done. There's a lot of stories, New York Times, the Audubon that has covered this actual farm and what we've gone through in order to try to win our case and, and still battling to get the funds. Uh, but in the meantime, we're still here again, and we're going to continue to do what we do. Well, it's a tough thing, right? On one hand, you're, you're trying to do everything and raise agriculture naturally. But as a result of that, there's a natural predator that has repopulated um, because of it, which may even unendanger them in a weird kind of way because they are repopulating around farms like you guys across the country, which is just an amazing thing in my opinion but on the other hand the damage that it causes to the farmers you know it's one of those things where you just it's it's how do you figure it out and and as consumers i think any consumers that are listening as well as entrepreneurs when we buy meats and stuff from from you guys as pasture raised products we have to have an understanding that we and be willing to pay the price um, and a more expensive price because if we want to protect natural species like eagles and we want our products pasture raised and we want them done in uh, agriculture and in the way nature intended it to help the soil and have a complete cycle, we've got to pay more right now because the world hasn't caught up to the way we're doing it. Like you said, there's still the big guys out there stuffing cattle in barns and, and chickens in coops that are never open to the outside world. And if they are, they have to climb through a hole, which not every chicken does. So, you know, I, I would encourage everyone to really think about what it means to be free range. Free range just means you have the option to be outside. And um, That's correct. That's, great. That's absolutely correct. I, I'm so thankful that you're giving that the time it needs for people to understand the difference. I mean, um, there's a lot of confusion in this in the consumer world, organic versus non-organic versus non-GMO versus pasture-raised versus free-range. Um, you know, people do wonder. Uh, no one ever, no farmer ever got up and thought that they were going to be factoring eagle losses into their product cost 
in order to deliver a great product to their consumer. And we have to do that. So it's a challenge to do that in an equitable way and that allows uh, people to be able to still afford the product. We, we take losses there. You know, we hope to make it up in certain areas on other products, hence the tallow and the leather and the pet shoes, uh, things that would possibly or traditionally be discarded. It helps us offset those losses so that we can continue to bring a product in line uh, marketing-wise that's affordable to people that want it and that can afford it. And so, yeah, the uh, pastured, raised animals are expensive to do. Losses are higher naturally. Uh, costs are more expensive. It's not, you can't automate taking a chicken out of the grasses into the plant like you can taking it out of a chicken house on a conveyor belt into the back of a truck into a plant. All of that is done mechanically now, and what we do is all done with human effort. And so those two things cost uh, the industry, the industrialized industry less, and the the non-industrialized industry, the pasture-raised industry, it costs us more. Uh, so it is a challenge, and getting people to understand that and willing to support us uh, economically and, and feel free and feel good about that decision, one, the food's better. Uh, it's better for you, and it's just going to taste better. I, I, I can, I'm convinced of that both personally and just through the success that we share here at White Oaks. If it weren't, we wouldn't have been here this long, increasing sales year over years. So the product is good. Uh, but it's a challenge and it's difficult and people just need to be constantly reminded that every time they make a choice to support a pasture-raised operation at a higher price point, uh, they're moving the bar and they're giving us a chance and, 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 and allowing us to continue to do what's right for both the human and for the food that they're eating. Yeah, and I want to go back to the chickens because I'm going to make an overall point, but in order to do it, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, so when the chickens are out, you know, you said it's, I think it was like three to four weeks, they go out and they're out in their natural environment for five to six weeks where they just get to roam around and quote unquote hide from the eagles. But what are they living off of while they're in those pastures? Uh, great question. Um, the chickens as well as our pigs are going to be supplemented in addition to their natural environments, food sources like grasses grains, bugs, they'll be uh, supported with a non-GMO uh, grain-based product uh, that will carry different nutrients and ingredients that allows them uh, to supplement. Um, you know, the omnivores that they are, they cannot sustain their lives on grasses alone like the cattle can or the sheep can or the goats. They have to have access. Now, if you had a small number of those animals, in your backyard and you turn them loose every day, although they would favor to have feed, uh, they could sustain themselves very well. Moving them in a level like we move them to bring them to market and to accomplish our regeneration process of concentrated um, impact on soil, uh, we have them in a certain area that would not allow that number of birds, say 2,000 birds, uh, to have access to enough food. So we supplement them naturally with a non-GMO based diet. Yeah, and I think that it, it's just so important that um, that they're it, it, you are exactly correct. And chickens, in order, they can't be one hundred percent naturally live off the land. I mean, they they run around. I mean, if anyone's been to Hawaii, they can see chickens running around, and they're <laughs> and they're living off the land and they're wild. But there's not much to those chickens. I mean, if you slaughtered one of those chickens and tried to eat it, you'd be very disappointed. You'd be getting bird-sized portions, and and not to 
play on words because they are a bird, but they are very natural and gamey and, and uh, very little meat on it. And it's almost a shame to slaughter one, which is why I think they're protected in Hawaii. They encourage people not to slaughter them um, because it's not worth the, the reward. But what you're doing is you're letting them be natural in Rome, but also supplementing them in order to make sure that they get the nutritional levels that are passed on to them. So here's the point I was going to make is that putting the right things into the chicken um, and letting them feed naturally, you know, the bugs, the worms, the grasses, the things like that, but then also supplementing them with a non-GMO grain that gives them the additional nutrients they need to survive and be healthy um, and, and doing it in a way that is good for them. That ultimately, as we consume those chickens, pass on to us as human beings. I mean, would, you know, one of the things we you, about organic or whatever and the whole movement is that whatever we're doing to the food as it's growing or as it's being raised, that ultimately passes through to us. Or even the food when it's cooked, if we're putting artificial ingredients and chemicals into it, that ultimately passes to us as humans. So in the case of the chickens, what you guys are doing is making sure that that chicken is both nutrition, uh, nutritious and has all the proper things in it so it can be also passed on to us as humans and we can get the proper nutrition and the healthy factors that we need from those chickens as human beings and as Absolutely. you know you know both carnivores and yeah. vegetarians well the the other thing that's really important that uh, folks might not immediately think of because we are talking about the feed source but there's an extraordinary amount of of uh, benefit from the natural sunlight and from the natural omega-3s they get from the grasses that we would otherwise not be able to give them. I mean, we can add certain things to their feeds uh, unnaturally, but what we try to do is to supplement them with natural feeds, natural grains that are of non-GMO origin, and then allow them to pick. Chickens are like humans or any other animal. We, we eat what we like, and chickens will tell us what they like. And all you have to do is to walk into any one of our pastures uh, where the cattle have been, uh, you got to remember that the cattle are not only in those pastures eating grass, they're, they're leaving behind their own cow pies. And then those cow pies are uh, a, a buffet of wonderful things that chickens and animals that we are running behind them love, which are high in protein and high in source of fat that are of natural origin. So those are converted, and they're converted, uh, again, naturally through the, the body and given that bird the energy that it needs. So uh, you know, it's a really healthy combination. There's not a case or a place or any situation or any pasture-raised operation in America that will claim or could claim that they're 100% pasture-raised and producing a bird uh, in an economical and ecological way that makes sense. Uh, but so you're going to have that balance between feed source and natural uh, feed source and a manufactured meat source. You just hope that the manufactured feed source is got the right origin there, whether it's an organic-based feed or a non-GMO feed or whatever's important to you and your family. Uh, but this is where it comes back to transparency, and it comes back to the farm and knowing your farmer and knowing where your food comes from. Uh, with us, you can look at any point. You can visit at any point. You can get a copy of our label. Uh, our, our audits that are done, third-party audits that are done on an annual basis, uh, they are traceable. They have to be, everything we do is traced back to the origin of the bird, to the origin of the feed, to the grain source, and that's published and done so that companies like Whole Foods 
and Publix will actually do the business they do with us. And so this transparency issue uh, is one that has to be done. So there's nothing more transparent than going to the farm and watching them pull the eggs out of the nest and looking at the hens actually in the green grass. Uh, that's about as transparent as it gets. And you're not going to get a lot of that from the industrialized uh, or commercialized industries. They're just not going to let you do that. They'll claim it's biosecurity, and there is a certain point of that, but it's really about we don't want you to see what we're doing, but we want you to buy our products at the same price, uh, in some cases even more, it seems like, than what those of us who are doing it properly are doing it. So I could get on my soapbox about that, but uh, I get excited about that very quickly. Uh, but transparency is key, and food source is very important. Yeah, and I and I love it because the one of the things that you mentioned, and and we talk about sort of the animals moving together, but the chickens do eat stuff out of the cow pies that help them process stuff that then they leave behind also, which complements the cow pies, especially fertilizing the land. And then when the as the cow pies break down and all that stuff's left there, and the pigs or the cows come back through, their hooves push that stuff into the soil, you know, no different than, you know, so the audience knows in suburban America, when you see uh, a truck out there uh, or a, a tractor and it has little spikes on it and it's drilling holes in the ground, basically aerating the soil, the animals sort of do that naturally and, and push those, um, you know, seeds and uh, as well as fertilizer into the soil. So I, you know, to take it full circle again, there's that piece of it, which I think is just so important. Well, they also not only are eating that product like the chickens or the other animals that come behind and the pigs that break up the soil even more deeply and go after the harder things, uh, you know, they're getting rid of parasites. I mean, there's tens of thousands of flies that could be available to our pastures, uh, which break things down. But the Chickens are help controlling that, that, that population, so it also makes it uh, beneficial in that respect. So uh, there is just such a symbiotic relationship between the monoculture, uh, the avoidance of monoculture to a multicultural experience on a farm, and there's reasons each species is here and each species plays a role. And, um, you know, sometimes it can get very overwhelming. Sometimes it can be very complicated. Uh, Will has done a good job at bringing together a great team of people uh, with his family as well as with the employees and managers and staff that are here that understand that process fairly well and that are growing and learning every day and and it's a new experience every day but yeah it's it's very much uh, important that people understand that process and understand the value of these animals and their impact on the soil and uh, what they're doing to contribute back to eventually carbon sequestering and climate and all of the things that we see as a part of this scientifically changing the way and where we're going to be in the next hundred years. Well, and I have to say, Mark, it has been such a pleasure talking with you and you are such a good steward and representative of, of this company that, I mean, if you're an example of who they hire and the knowledge base that you have, I mean, it's, you really, I mean, they're lucky to have you and you're so well-spoken, you're so knowledgeable, you're in incredibly approachable. I mean, it's really been such a pleasure getting to talk to you and hear all about it. I mean, there's just so many facets of it that we could go on for a lifetime talking about this. Um, and your experience is amazing. And so I can't thank you enough for sharing it with us. Yeah. And I'm definitely going well, to reach out. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mark. No, no I, I was just going to jump in and say, thank you, Deborah. It's been a pleasure. And I'm honored to be a part of White Oaks uh, family and certainly a part of its future. And and we just hope that you guys will get out of uh, 
the cold weather of Colorado, we're soaring up to about 80 today, and yesterday we were 85, and it's a little too early. We really wish it wasn't there this quickly, but uh, uh, certainly we hope you'll give us an opportunity to show you this in person someday, and, and you and some of your family, uh, come on down and enjoy White Oak Pastures. Yeah, for sure. I'm, we'll definitely come down there because I'm curious in, in, in our line of business and what we're doing in Georgia, we have a, a need for products like yours. So I think it's so important that uh, we actually come down there and visit you guys and, and have a conversation. But uh, I definitely will be in touch with, with Jenny uh, after this to, to try to set up another episode with you guys to continue to talk because I think there's just so much there. I mean, we sort of dove into the chickens, but I mean, we could really dive into each species and do something really special with this podcast that I think is so important with what you guys are doing and promoting what you guys are doing and promoting white oak pasture. So I will talk to her about that uh, offline. But the other part that I think is so cool is we were talking about you guys and um, Will Harris, which you said is the fourth generation cattleman, and you're on the sixth generation on the farm, and he's the owner of White Oak Pastures, but he was recently presented with the UGA Small Business Development Center's Entrepreneur of the Year Award. And so that's pretty awesome. And what, I mean, just hearing this story, I'm like, okay, like I really understand why, because what you guys are doing there is just so amazing. And Mark, I can't thank you enough for just being so authentic and, and vulnerable and telling us exactly what's going on there and, and sharing it with everyone and all of your products. And, and I can't wait to have the next conversation. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. And we look forward to uh, lining up our next, my, uh, my associates and contemporaries that are much smarter than me and certainly much uh, better at explaining their departments, but we hope that you will uh, continue to let us be a part of your podcast. And I think your your idea of uh, featuring different groups, whether it's cattle or whether it's uh, uh, pigs or sheep or goats, and certainly hopefully you can wrangle Will on here at some point because he's quite the character and uh, his Southern drawl is way worse than mine and he's a lot of fun. So I hope you get a chance to share with him uh, some of the stuff that he's done and the stories that he has because they're absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, I hope so too. And I'd love to talk to him just because I want to hear about the mind behind the the masterpiece, basically. It's just like... vision. I know. We've got like the, you know, the Michelangelo of multicultural, uh, multi-species farming. And it's just so cool what you guys are doing down there. And and as all of our adventures in Georgia, we've heard about it through different people. You've got to go down to White Oak Pastures if you're going to do business here and you're going to produce food and you're going to do things in Georgia, you have to use the, these products because the way they grow the animals or raise the animals and the way they have their produce done and eggs and all of that is in such an amazing way that the quality and the taste of the meats and, and all of that is, is seen through and up tasted through, I guess would maybe be a better term, but it's just so amazing. So I'm very excited to continue the conversation and meet with you guys and come see the farm. And anyone in the audience who likes what you're hearing and, and likes what White Oaks Pastures is doing, one, go to their website. As we said, it's whiteoakpastures.com. They're White Oak Pastures on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, take a look at what they're doing. It's amazing. Go visit them. Order their products online. I promise you will not be disappointed. I've had it at some of the Flavor Georgia contests. It's incredible. And... Um, I encourage all of you to continue to share it 
and share what we're doing here. And thank you everyone for listening in. Uh, we're in over 39 countries right now and we have tens of thousands of downloads, which is pretty amazing. Uh, if you're interested in being on the show, please contact me, Justin at the food entrepreneurs.com or on social media. You can direct message me. It's at Justin and the food entrepreneurs on both Instagram and Facebook. And thank you everyone and have a great day.